Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. The title of the message today is A Day Like No Other. Chapter 10 tells us the story that the Bible says is a day like no other in human history. I don't know about you, but I'm interested in reading about a day that's unique in human history. So uh, let's do that. Joshua 10, verses 1 through 15. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoam, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Machedah. And as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorite before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. May the Lord add his blessing in the reading of this, his word. Now, I know that some of you have been traveling this summer. Probably very few of you were here for all of the sermon series of Joshua, so I'm going to re preach all of it today. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just going to review real fast, so listen fast. You remember that God sent Moses, as we said earlier today, to deliver the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. He did so in a miraculous way. But they came out into the wilderness and the first thing they started to do, remember this is about two million people we believe, they began to grumble and complain about the Lord's provision. So He sent the manna from heaven. All they had to do was go out there and pick it up, 
Their clothes didn't wear out. The Lord provided His very presence with them, a pillar of fire. But they complained. For 40 years this went on. They wandered about in the wilderness until that generation passed away and God raised up a new generation. And even Moses, that great man of God, was not allowed into the promised land. And God had appointed a different leader, a man by the name of Joshua, to take this leadership from Moses and to indeed lead the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. But God made some promises to Joshua. He said, be strong and courageous, for just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Be strong and courageous. Only remember to keep the words of the law. So Joshua pledged to do that. Then the Lord gave him further revelation. He was out walking one day, and he sees a man with a drawn sword. The Bible says this man was the commander of the host of heaven, God's heavenly army. Perhaps it was even a pre-incarnate Christ. Whatever the case, Joshua understood that he was in the presence of greatness and he submitted to the leadership of this commander. And that commander told him how he was going to defeat the city of Jericho. They had crossed, remember, miraculously across the flood water of the Jordan River. They stuck their toe in the water and God stopped the water so that they could cross on dry land. And once on the other side they camped in a place called Gilgal. And the first city they were to conquer was the city of Jericho, which had thick walls running all around it, well fortified, and it seemed like a formidable task. task. And uh, God did not use their military strength or ingenuity. Instead, He was teaching them a lesson about submission. He told them to simply walk around the outskirts of the city one time every day and to blow a horn. They did this for six consecutive days. On the seventh day, they were told to walk around seven times. And when they heard the horn blow, they were to shout. And they did that, and you know what happened next. The walls came tumbling down. The city of Jericho was defeated. And even as they were basking in the glory of their first military conquest, there was sin in the camp. God had sent a prohibition that they were not to take of any of the spoils of the city. And yet there was a man who couldn't resist and he took some silver bars and a suit of clothing from Babylon. And so they went to their next battle, which was the city of Ai, a much smaller city. Seemed like it would be an easy victory. They were routed. And the Lord revealed to them it was because there was sin in the camp. And once that sin was dealt with, then they were to go back to Ai and then they won an easy victory. And that brings us to the curious case of the Gibeonites which was our sermon last week. Remember the next city on the map was the city of Gibeon. And these people the Bible described as cunning and crafty. They realized that it was foolish to fight against God. And they realized God was fighting for Israel. And so they decided they would hatch a plan whereby they would spare their own lives. So they put on the oldest garments they could find. They found an old broken down donkey. And uh, they put some old moldy crusty bread. And they traveled to Gilgal where Joshua was camped and approached him and said, We come from a far off land. This bread was hot when we took it out of the oven. Now it's old and crusty just to prove our point. Joshua had some questions about that, but after investigating their clothes and their bread, he and the other people believed it without consulting the Lord, by the way. And they were tricked into signing a covenant that was binding for generations to come. They could not do any harm to the Gibeonites. And on top of that, the Gibeonites came under their military protection. So you caught up? All right, that brings us to chapter 10 today, verse 1. Now it came about when Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem. By the way, that's the first time the city of Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible. 
heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and his kings, so he had done Ai and his kings, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly. And so, so here's what happened. There were several kingdoms in that area. They were all under the, the bigger heading of Amorites. And they see that the Gibeonites had sued for peace and were under the military protection. And, and they theorized this, if these other city-states do the same thing, we will lose all of our power and authority. So we've got to go to Gibeon and punish them thoroughly for making a peace agreement with Israel. And so he called four of his best king buddies and he said, let's join our forces and let's attack Gibeon. That's exactly what they did. Well, remember the Gibeonites had come under the military protection of Joshua. So once they saw these armies surrounding their cities, they sent guys I'm sure under cover of darkness and made their way to where Joshua was camped and said, hey, you said you would protect us. We're being attacked. Come up and help us. And remember that Joshua was a man of his word, right? Now he could have been tempted to say, well, serves you right for tricking me. But instead he got the people together, got a plan in place, and he had a forced march all night long across very difficult terrain in the middle of the night to surprise these confederated armies, and he routed them thoroughly. At least he was in the process of routing them thoroughly. So much so that they turned on their heels and began to run back to their five cities they came from. I'm sure they thought if we can get behind the walls and close the door, we can regroup and maybe survive to fight another day. And just as they were fleeing, the Lord put a storm in their path. Not just any storm, the Bible called it a hail storm. And it's not just any hail. It didn't just put dents in their cars or their chariots, okay? This hail was so large that it was lethal. In fact, the scripture says more of them died by the hailstorms than they did by the edge of the sword that day. So here's the scene. Joshua's standing up on a hill. He's seeing these men fleeing back to their cities. He's seeing the hail fall on them. The sun's setting over here in the west. And he realizes we're not going to have time to thoroughly win this battle today unless something happens. And so what does he do? He, he asked for something incredible. Look at verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Now that is pretty bold faith, isn't it? Here's a guy that asked God to cause the sun to stop moving so that he could finish what he started. Now this was an important battle. This was the first time that the armies of Israel had faced on the field of battle the combined forces of one of these powerful nations. Up until this time it had just been one city, Jericho, and then another city, Ai. But now they've gotten organized they put together a real army and they're facing them. And lo and behold, Joshua's winning. He and the Israelites are, are, are thoroughly routing these armies. And they realize if, if we can defeat them thoroughly, we will control these five cities in the southern part of the promised land. And we'll have a strong foothold here. And from there, we can launch out and take the rest of the land that God has promised to us. But if they were allowed 
to, to reorganize and go back to their cities and fortify and rearm, maybe it would take a lot longer to take the land. And so Joshua wants to finish the battle that day once and for all. And so did God hear his prayer. Well, the Bible says God heard his prayer. He caused the sun, verse 13, to stand still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. He goes on to say, about the length of a full day. God literally stopped time so that the victory would be thorough and complete. Wow. That's why the Bible says this is a story like none other. No day before it was like it, no day after it's been like it. Well, as you can imagine, this story has been attacked and maligned and vilified as a tall tale or a myth by those who don't believe the Bible is true. They would ask, are we really to believe that God stopped time at the request of one human being? Well, I'm not going to leave you in suspense about my personal view. I believe God literally stopped time that day. Now, that I have said that, I want to ask each of you a few related questions to this story. The first question I want to ask is this, how big is your God? How big is your God? Even today, the vast majority of Americans self-identify as theist. That is, they believe in the existence of a creator. Now, they have varying opinions about who that creator is or what he's like, but the vast majority of Americans say, I believe in God. The question, though, is not do you believe in God? The question is, how big is your God? Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a great pastor from another era, used to tell the story quite frequently of being invited back to his alma mater, Princeton, to speak at chapel 15 years after his graduation. He noticed as he entered the chapel that his favorite Hebrew professor had arrived early and had stationed himself right here on the front pew, which made him a little nervous. And after the message, the professor approached him and said, Donald, I always come to hear my former students once in chapel because I want to know if they are big godders or little godders. He explained that, that some of his students, after they became pastors, began to preach a little god, a god that can't perform miracles or can't take care of the inspiration and the preservation of Scripture. He said, I'm glad to know that you are a big godder. Friends, our God is a big, big God. He is powerful enough to do whatsoever He commands, including striking an army down with hailstones and making the sun stand still in the middle of the day. But if you believe that, as I do, there are always going to be skeptics. Three years ago, I was contacted by a reporter from CBS News. He was doing a story about small towns in Texas, and Keller was one of them, and they wanted me to comment on what he called a folk tale he had heard about here in Keller. Well, I've been here long enough to know exactly what he was talking about. And I said, well, if you'll wait an hour or two, I'll go into our archives and I'll photocopy what we have there and I'll send it to you. And so I did. And I found uh, this, this page right here. When I say I, I mean my secretary. <laughs> I don't know how to use the photo machine. And she copied this page from a book that was published in 1982. And there's a paragraph in there, and it's just written just 
matter-of-factly, it's right between a paragraph that described the pastor's salary per month in 1936 and the purchase of the church's first swamp cooler, which preceded air conditioning in the early 40s. It was as history. And th this is what the paragraph says. Around 1937, there was a feed mill behind the church facing Main Street. Now you have to know at that time, First Baptist Church of Keller's campus was the corner of 377 and 1709, right by the old water tower that still stands there, where the Veterans Memorial is. And so there was a feed mill right behind the wood-structured church. One weeknight, the feed mill caught fire. Since there was no fire department at that time, the fire was quickly a huge blaze with intense heat. Sparks were beginning to hit the church roof, and the paint on the north side had begun to melt. The heat must have reached the high temperature of a blast furnace, because just as the spectators watched in fear that the church would also ignite, the metal on the water tower gave way and the water container fell, spilling the water and putting out the fire. And some of our members today, this was 1982, saw the charred remains and are convinced the Lord intervened at the exact time to save the church building with the water tower gone. Keller was without water for some time thereafter, and water had to be brought in by wagons. Now when I emailed that paragraph to this reporter, he quickly emailed back a rather sharp-worded, sarcastic, cynical email, doubting the truth of that story. And I sent him back a reply, and we went back and forth about six or eight times that day I know this because I went back and found the emails from three years ago because I don't delete. <laughs> and the last email, and I got the last word. <laughs> this is what I said. I said, well, I was not alive in 1936, but I know that the God we serve can create the universe with a word. He can surely put out a little feed store fire in Keller, Texas. That's a big God. How big is your God? Well, there's another question. How bold is your faith? Look at verse 12 here in chapter 10. A very telling verse. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord. Now, he's not commanding the son. He's praying. Spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, note this, in the sight of Israel. He prayed this prayer publicly. His faith was so bold that he declared it publicly. That is, he did not hedge his bets. Now, it's just about football season around here. And uh, it's been a long, long time, but you know I used to be a high school football coach. And I remember my very first season right out of college, I was coaching under an older, grizzled football coach. And we had our two-a-day practices, and we were getting ready for our first game early in August, and uh, as happened every year, apparently, the local sports editor of the newspaper dropped by our offices and wanted to interview our head coach. And no matter what the reporter asked him, he answered this way. Well, what kind of team are you going to have this year, coach? He says, well, we're small, but we're slow. <laughs> and, and after the reporter left, I said, why did you say that? I think we're going to be pretty good this year. He said, well, I learned a long time ago to manage expectations. And if you have everyone believing you're not any good and you win a few games, you're a hero. <laughs> well, Joshua was not managing expectations. 
He got the people together and he said in front of all of them, God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop the sun in the sky. That's some bold faith. And when you have bold faith, it leads to certain expectations. And that's my third question. How certain are your expectations? Do you believe God can and will hear your prayers? Now Joshua had reason to have high expectations. He had seen God do some amazing things in his life. He was there, obviously, when Moses held out his rod over the Red Sea and it parted and they crossed on dry land. He was there when the manna fell from heaven. He was leading the armies of Israel when Hur and Aaron stood on each side of Moses and held his arms up all day long so that they could win the battle. He had heard God's voice say, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. So Joshua has bold faith and he has a certainty in his expectations about what, what God can and would do. And that led to an audacity to actually believe God. Do you know people like that? They actually believe the Bible? We ought to have a church full of people like that. Joshua had the audacity to ask for things only God could do. Look at verse 12. On that day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. And guess what? The Lord heard him. Verse 13, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. One more question. How diligent is your service? God uses the means of his people to accomplish his will. So Joshua didn't stay in his tent when he heard that Gibeon was being attacked. He got up, got dressed. He got his generals together apparently. They put together quickly a battle strategy they formed ranks and they had a forced march all night long so that they could surprise their enemy the next morning. What I mean by that is even though God did a miracle that next day, they still had to plan. They still had to execute the plan. They had to march, a hard march all night. And when they got there, they still had to fight. But most importantly, they, they still had to pray. They had to live in constant dependence upon the Lord. Now I say it every week, I'll say it again. That's a good story. It's a great story. In fact, if you know anything about the book of Joshua, you probably know the story of Jericho and you remember the story of the sun standing still. I still remember when I was about second grade in my Sunday school class, we had flannel boards. You remember those? And there'd be a a board here with felt on it, and they would take these cut-out pictures. And I remember the teacher putting that picture of Joshua looking up at the sun, asking God to cause it to stand still in the sky. That's a wonderful story. It's entertaining. But you may be asking yourself, what in the world could that story, which most of my friends believe is a tall tale or a myth, have to say to the church here in 2018 in Keller, Texas? I think it has quite a lot to say. Friends, we are at the threshold today, as I said earlier, of a new church year. And I have been praying, and I want to pray in front of you today, that it will be the greatest year in the history of the church. And I pray when they rewrite this history of First Baptist Keller in the year 2082, that they will refer to this year often. And what we remember is not what the salaries were or not that the air condition went out in the middle of summer, which it did. 
but it's that the Lord did some things that could only be explained that He did it. Here specifically is what I'm praying. You may want to write these down if you want to join me in this. Number one, I'm praying that the lost will be saved. We still live in a city surrounded by lost people. Don't ever forget that. Though we are in the buckle of the Bible Belt, the vast majority of the citizens of Keller and North Tarrant County do not know the Lord. And I pray that more will be saved this year. I pray that we will give as a church more to missions than we ever have. I pray the Lord would help us to start another church in the year ahead. I pray that more of you would be involved in personal evangelism than ever in the history of our church. I pray that God would do a work here in short that can only be explained that He did it. Here's what I mean by that. I fear that much of what we call the Lord and His work in the evangelical church today can be explained by a lot of other ways than He did it. It can be explained by marketing. It can be explained by charismatic personalities, and it can be explained by a multitude of ways. What I am praying the Lord would do here at First Baptist Keller could only be explained that He did it. And we would only know it when we see it. In fact, we don't even know exactly how we should pray other than we want to see it. And I know that many of you want that. You've expressed that to me. I, I hear you saying amen. I see you nodding your head. You want that, don't you? But if I know anything about the Scripture, I need to remind us all that if, if those things are going to happen, some things must be in order. First and foremost, we must have a big God. We've got to be big Godders and not little Godders. We need a church full of big Godders. People believe that the Bible is true and that God is as powerful today as that He's ever been. And if we don't believe that, we can't expect Him to do anything. And then we have to have a bold faith. The Bible invites us to come with boldness into the Lord's presence and make our petitions known. Now there's a difference between boldness and arrogance. Arrogance, arrogance says that I'm worthy, and so here I am. Boldness says I'm not worthy, but I am in Christ because of what He did for me. And now His righteousness is my righteousness, and I come with boldness into the throne room of my Heavenly Father. That's the kind of boldness that we need as a church. Let us come with boldness. And then thirdly, we have to have certain expectations. That is, we have to have expectations that are certain. They are steadfast and sure. That is not vacillating, not wavering. Listen to what James the brother of Jesus wrote in James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now the Bible doesn't say we have to have perfect faith in order to serve the Lord. In fact, Jesus indicated if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move the mountains, right? But what we can't have is vacillating faith. That is, one day we believe and the next we don't. He says that's a, a double-minded man. He's two-faced. 
Hypocritical is the word. It's not sincere. But he says, if we will pray, nothing doubting, believing, then we have the right to have these certain expectations that God is going to hear and and answer our prayer. But I think there's one more thing that must be present. We have to serve the Lord diligently. And don't hear me saying that salvation is by works. You know me better than that. The Bible says salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we don't work to be saved. We are saved so we work, right? Because we're born again, because we are in Christ, then we serve Him and not serve Him haphazardly. We serve Him diligently. Again, Joshua got the word that the Gibeonites were being attacked. He went to work. He formed a plan. He got the people organized, and then they marched all night, and then they fought once they got there. They had to work. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But I think the greatest example of this is is the words of the Apostle Paul as he labored to explain the success of the church. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gives the increase. Now this is a farming analogy. And some of you know I fancy myself a farmer of sorts. Not a very good one apparently this summer. But, but I like to farm. And, and I don't know a lot about farming, but I know this. You have to put a seed in the soil. And you have to water and tend that soil. But you can't make it germinate. You can't make it grow. And you certainly can't cause it to set fruit. Only the Lord does that. But I do know this. If I don't plant the seed, if I don't water and tend the soil, it's not going to put on fruit. That's the way God designed farming to be. And that's the way He designed church work to be. Evangelism. God could have chosen any means at His disposal to save the lost. And that means everything because He's God. But The Bible says He has chosen the foolishness of preaching. That is, one person declaring a simple message that the God of glory sent His Son into the world to live a perfect life, to die atoning death for the sins of the world. The Bible says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The means that God has chosen to propagate the gospel and to expand His kingdom is one person who's been saved telling another person who's lost how to be saved. And that has been going on for 2,000 years, right up until this good day. My point is this. When you nod your head when I say, we're praying that God would save the lost, guess what? You are signing up to work. You're saying, I'm going to share the gospel with my neighbor and with my family members and my co-workers. And when you ask God to send more through missions than ever before, you're signing up to contribute to that. And when you're asking God to do something that cannot be explained other than He supernaturally did it, you're signing up to pray. That's what we're all signing up for today on this Renewal Sunday. And it's my hope and earnest expectation that every member of this church will do those things. We'll recognize that the God we serve is the same as He was in the day of Joshua. That we will have 
bold faith, that we will have expectations that are certain and we'll work harder for His glory than ever before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church, First Baptist Keller. And I wasn't there in 1936, but uh, I know you can do that. You've done even greater things since then. Father, we pray you'd do it again. Not so that we can have our name in a book, but so that Jesus would be glorified in a city where far too often he's not. Father, we are surrounded every day with the lost. We pray for their salvation. Lord, I pray for our church family that we would be motivated to be zealous in evangelism, that we would speak a good word for Jesus at every opportunity, whether at school or at home or at work. Father, I pray you'd send awakening and revival. Let it begin here, Lord. We expect you to do great things this year. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.